The Kansas legislature, four months into the backbreaking annual session, is reaching bedrock in key areas of public policy. The evidence emerges in the most simplistic of forms, the snappy yes or no votes of bills, amendments, resolutions, but also in poignant and sometimes quite lengthy speeches on the House and Senate floors. I'm joined by Kansas Reflector colleagues C.J. Janovey, Noah Taborda, and Sherman Smith to sort through gems of oratory, touching on the GOP's power to override vetoes by our Democratic governor, the short-term memory and revisionist history applied to COVID-19, the related financial intervention by government during the pandemic, and anxiety about forming a culture of dependency, as well as consideration of a medical marijuana law. To get started, let's uh, turn to CJ. And I think you were drawn to remarks by Senator Pat Petty, a Kansas City, Kansas Democrat. Uh, yes, Tim, this was this was Tuesday in the Senate. And this was, I think, you know, during one of those really long debates. And uh, they were talking about Senate Bill 286, which uh, would set up this fund, this Business Relief Act, to provide funds for businesses that were hurt during the pandemic. And there were lots of discussion about this, lots of proposed amendments. And, and Senator Pat Petty of Kansas City, at one point, uh, she's a Democrat, she tried to make an amendment that would take out a part of the bill that required cities and counties to pay damage claims. Senator Kelly Warren, a Republican of Leewood, was having none of that. She said, she said this interesting phrase. She said that counties and cities that instituted shutdowns and other measures to try and, and mitigate COVID-19, Warren said those government entities were the ones that had inflicted the harm on businesses. And here's what Senator Pat Petty said in response to that. So I think it's interesting to hear the term inflicted the decisions. Um, it's as if somehow we didn't all live through COVID-19, as if we all weren't impacted at the federal, state, city, county, home level, as if some in this body didn't even lose their loved ones. I mean, those decisions were made because we had a life-threatening disease that we now can't be armchair quarterbacks and look back and say, oh, this shouldn't have happened. I think that's just so disingenuous when we do that. I think that just really sums up the whole year of COVID really, you know, at first for just this very short time, there was a sense that, that this was something huge and dangerous that required a unified response. But then almost immediately it devolved into totally different worlds based on politics. And so you experienced the pandemic based on those politics. There were public health officials who were desperate to fight it and COVID deniers saying it was overblown, you know, maskers versus anti-maskers, people who desperately wanted the vaccine and people who refused to take it. So I thought Petty's comments just spoke to that whole larger problem in our state, in our country, about seeing the world through these two different lenses. CJ, this is Sherman. I, you know, I just have to wonder, because we've heard this language at times throughout the session of wanting to punish these health officials and public officials who acted like there was a pandemic going on. And I, I just have to wonder how much of this is a, a true belief that we did not need to take this threat very seriously. And how much of this is just political theater, people playing to 
ignorance and, and frustration of the general public? I, I have no idea. I mean, I think that will be one of the one of the questions that are of our time that historians and political scientists will will write dissertations about. You know, how much of this how much of this did people really believe? Did people really believe that that COVID wasn't the threat it was? Versus, did they just want to say that because that's what their tribe was saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a, a lot of people still don't believe in the the effectiveness of wearing a mask. Um, and I know that some of the legislators don't either, but it feels like you expect the people in these positions to to be smarter and more responsible. This is a legislature with with certified medical doctors. This is a Congress with certified medical doctors, in both cases from Kansas, urging the public to be skeptical about proven science. And so, you know, I, I think there's a spectrum of people who, who are who are falling for pseudoscience or rejecting science based on political dogma, and and I don't know where where the subset of those folks ends, and the people who are just doing it for politics. I don't know how much overlap there really is. I have to say, I remain puzzled by these elected public servants, who place their sense of individual liberty place their peers in jeopardy by displaying this. They refuse to follow public health recommendations. I guess it was just too much of an imposition to wear a mask while working in the Capitol alongside medically vulnerable people. Colleagues they knew were suffering from cancer and other maladies. I think back to the greatest generation. What if America's greatest generation had shrugged its shoulders during World War II and refused to wear a helmet or refused to wear surgical scrubs while fighting fighting dictators, where would we be then? Trying to ration gasoline and trying to ration some of these other things that they did during during that time. I, I think about when we had this cold snap and, and electricity was scarce in February and these pleadings from the governor and from others to turn your thermostat down. And I thought, we can't get people to wear a mask to save their neighbor's lives. How are we gonna get people to turn their thermostat down? And getting back to the, to the comment by Pat Petty, she was kind of just reminding people don't forget what we went through. Acknowledge that while you offer your criticisms, but to, to exclude anything in the positive just seems political, raw political. So I, I, I wanna piggyback on, on a part of the conversation on that same bill, which uh, I believe was about um, appointing an unelected three-person board putting them in charge of deciding how hundreds of millions of federal COVID-19 relief dollars were given to businesses that suffered when the state, counties, cities responded to the pandemic by temporary closing or limiting hours of operation. They're talking about $700 million. So the bill is problematic because um, this board would operate in secrecy. And, uh, and some of the people involved in developing this policy haven't been very transparent about their quest for higher office. But during the debate, Senator Dennis Pyle, the Hiawatha Republican actually voted against this bill, creating the framework for throwing cash at businesses. Keep in mind, he was enraged by Governor Kelly and other government officials that stepped in to dictate to private businesses. He said it was about liberty. But he also denounced the trillions of dollars already delivered to individuals and businesses by Republican and Democratic presidents and members of Congress and enabled by Kansas's GOP-dominated legislature. Here's what he had to say. Look at where we're going. Dependency, 
I mean, are all of these entities being encouraged, whether they're workers, employees, those laid off, businesses that were closed, are they all going to be sitting here a year from now after all these monies are dispersed and say, gee, I hope another COVID comes along? What are we encouraging? The people of Kansas that are out there watching and listening in, they want a solution. And they want to know that their freedom going forward is not going to be inhibited. And we shouldn't be encouraging a lifestyle that says, no, give me more. I understand where Pyle's coming from here. The one thing about the bill that I would wonder is whether or not it retains a piece that requires recipients of all this money to have their business name, their address, and the amount they received published. Because without doing that, this whole thing would have been done in secret and would cause me great anxiety. So the, uh, the board would be under the administrative purview of Attorney General Derek Schmidt. He's a 2022 candidate for governor and the state's top law enforcement officer. In the past, the state's chief executive, that is Governor Laura Kelly, who is also running for re-election, would have been in charge of this. The House uh, didn't immediately uh, jump on board on this bill. I think there were some, some problematic elements of it. Uh, as, they, as they work behind the scenes, two of the people doing that are, are interested in running for attorney general themselves, Representative Blaine Finch and Senator Kelly Warren. So the whole thing is just mired in political people trying to make, make that next step up the ladder. What do we think about uh, Chris Kobach as attorney general doling out cash behind closed doors to companies at his whim? Chris Kobach could very well be elected the state's next attorney general. Um, you know, the part of that, that that I think is essential is that that this information be put out there publicly. We're talking about okay. hundreds of millions of dollars. And if you don't tell us who got it and how much, it's just a, it's just a huge government slush fund. And, you know, the other part of this is there's a bunch of legislators that have small businesses that were impacted by government mandates. And I'd very much like to know exactly how much they received based on this bill for which they're voting on. Right. It doesn't matter who the attorney general ends up being. We shouldn't allow these sort of things to happen in the dark. I think transparency is one of my pet peeves. And it bothers me when we see increasingly public business being done behind closed doors affecting, in this case, possibly hundreds of millions of dollars in taxpayer money. Yeah, and here's a chance for legislators themselves to, to show how transparent they are when they pull back the, the, the cover of their accounting ledger for the public to see when it comes to their own businesses. All right, Sherman, you ran across an example of inventive math, I think, uh, during a debate on a tax bill. Yeah, this, uh, this is in a tax bill that has been a Republican priority for four years now, four sessions uh, following changes in 2017 tax code. Uh, it can get complicated, uh, but the the heart of this is uh, cutting taxes for multinational corporations and also allowing high wage earners to itemize on their individual income taxes in in on their state filing while still taking the federal standard deduction. Uh, this is because the the federal standard deduction went up dramatically. It's now at twenty four thousand eight hundred, but the Kansas standard deduction is only eight thousand. And so, if you have enough write offs to be somewhere between those two numbers, the idea is that you could take the standard deduction from the feds and still itemize at the state level. 
But when the Department of Revenue and others have actually run the numbers on this, they find that really only 7% of people could actually do this in Kansas and that they would all be in the top 18% of wage earners. But in debate on the Senate floor, and this was the first bill that came up the, in the veto session uh, for what the Senate president referred to as a veto override or Rama. Uh, this was their number one priority. It came up first. And we saw Senator Jeff Longbine, a Republican from Emporia, uh, say, you know, everybody keeps saying this is going to benefit the rich, but that couldn't be farther from the truth. And he provides this hypothetical example of what he refers to as an, an average Kansas family. Take a couple of school teachers. Um, let's say they have $12,000 in mortgage expense uh, throughout the year, $5,000 in property tax. Uh, they've given a couple thousand dollars away in charitable contributions to their church and other charities. And oh, by the way, they had a medical, they had a, uh, a baby that year and they spent $2,000 in medical expense. Well, that's $19,000 that under current law, they cannot deduct that they previously could deduct. That income makes a huge difference to our W-2 wage earner families. So when you do the math, he's trying to make the point, I think, that, that this is a middle class income tax bill. And, you know, a bunch of these provisions absolutely benefit wealthy people and corporations. I, I don't know any middle class family, any any average family that, that owns uh, a home that, it, that has such a high loan that you could write off 12,000 in mortgage interest. You know, looking at some of the, the mortgage calculators, the interest you would pay in a year, you'd have to owe uh, at least $300,000 on your home to even reach that level. Uh, I, I think it's it would be a unique pair of school teachers who own a three hundred fifty thousand dollar house, have a baby, and still have enough money left over to give two thousand to charity. Sherman, the governor has actually vetoed this a few times before. Is that is that true? What, what's going to happen next? Yeah, she's vetoed this three times. Uh, you know, she likes to draw a correlation to 2012 tax cuts that uh, former governor Sam Brownback signed that were devastating to the state and and probably helped her get elected in the first place. Um, she, she continues to say that we, we can't afford this, uh, that it's benefiting the, the wrong people. This, this becomes law now because of the, the override, uh, I think it was basically a strictly party line override in both chambers. Uh, so it does become law, but we also heard Senator Karen Tyson make the point that, you know, Democrats keep talking about doom and gloom, but if you look at the revenue forecast and the, the revenue numbers that are actually coming in, the, the state can't afford this. And at the end of the day, Monday, after the override was complete, the, the governor's administration released the April, April revenue numbers. And even though they had revised these upwards, the estimate in late April, they still came in 92 million over the estimate. So in one month, they had a surplus enough to basically pay for a year of this tax cut. Yeah, but as we know, it's easy to burn through a bunch of uh, tax revenue if you, you cut taxes enough. What's interesting is I, I think none of this is going to stop Governor Kelly from running for governor again based on a platform of Governor Sam Brownback was a huge mistake. So right. things that, that Governor Brownback did nearly 10 years ago are going to be front and center in Laura Kelly's Democratic campaign. So, you know, a lot of people were upset with her handling of the, the pandemic. But if you fast forward to 12, 18 months from now, she can say the, the pandemic is behind us. But the threat to state services, the threat to public education, it's happening right now and somebody needs to, to be there as a buffer against it. All right, Noah, let's, let's turn to uh, another item that has the potential to raise some revenue. 
and, and make a certain segment of the population quite happy. That is medical marijuana. Right. So a medical marijuana bill passed the House uh, 79 to 42 for the first time. It was a debate filled with puns and dad jokes. And it was uh, a year of firsts for marijuana in the Kansas legislature. Uh, Senate Bill 158 creates the framework for legalized cannabis for people with qualifying conditions, chronic pain, PTSD, etc. cetera. Uh, and to make the bill more palatable to the full chamber, a House committee made multiple amendments earlier in the week. It was split among Republicans in the House, but Democrats ended up pushing the measure over the top. Many of the arguments made were actually similar to that of Medicaid expansion. And that's something that Representative Russ Jennings a Lakin Republican pointed out in this soundbite. The arguments that are being advanced to support medical marijuana sound familiar. Let's run through a few of those. Everyone else is doing it. Every other state is doing it. 39 states have expanded Medicaid, but only 36 states have legalized any form or use of marijuana, medically or otherwise. More states have expanded Medicaid than marijuana. Broad public support. That's what we heard this morning in our caucus. By golly, there's broad public support for medical marijuana. Well, the Docking Institute at Fort Hayes State University, Kansas Speaks survey suggests that 66 0.9% of those surveyed support not only medical marijuana, they support recreational marijuana. And on the question of Medicaid, holy cow, 63.5% surveyed support expanding Medicaid in Kansas. Wow, broad public support. It will bring revenue into the state. Both do. But more significantly, I think Medicaid expansion brings a whole lot more revenue into the state. It provides for jobs and business. When you bring revenue into the state and you start circulating those dollars around, whether it's from medical marijuana taxes or Medicaid expansion. It's good for the economy. In fact, in January, the, the governor had proposed in her budget tying together Medicaid expansion uh, with medical marijuana, paying for the, the cost of Medicaid expansion through that uh, additional revenue. Uh, but Jennings, at the end of his quote, ends up suggesting that Kansas ought to wait until federal government weighs in. Some weren't quite as friendly in opposition toward this measure as Jennings, saying that it would likely open the floodgates for recreational marijuana. Uh, however, no member of the House offered an amendment to legalize recreational marijuana, and even if they had, it likely would not have gotten the necessary 63 votes to advance. Still, there were a lot of amendments made to make it more strict than it appeared even a few months ago. And even after all that work, opponents still argued that there wasn't sufficient vetting. And I think that irked a lot of advocates who've spent many, many years just to get legislation to this point. I think there's this camel's nose approach here of just get some form of legalized marijuana, no matter how restrictive through. And then when the world doesn't come to an end, you can start to chip away at those, those restrictions. 
The other interesting thing here is I, I went to the, the meeting of House Republicans when they talked about what they were going to do with this bill before they went out on the floor to vote on it. And the sentiment, excuse me, the House Majority Leader, Dan Hawkins, he explained that they needed to get this done right now because he was tired of being hassled by all these constituents and advocates who desperately want this. A strong majority of Kansans do want this. Uh, and he made the point that he didn't want to be bugged for another eight months by people saying, when are you going to get this done? And now they're going to put all of the onus over on the Senate. Mm -hmm. I should just a little bit of background in terms of the bill. This, you would have to go to a physician, you need to get a card that substantiates that you have a doctor who says you have Alzheimer's or cancer or epilepsy or glaucoma or multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's. And uh, it's this is not a thing where you could go get your marijuana and smoke it or vape it. It would have to be in the form of oil, edibles, patches that you stick on you. So, but Sherman's right that there was huge consternation among uh, some legislators who don't like this, that phase two, once you have the infrastructure, the business infrastructure in place for medical marijuana is to flip a switch and do recreational, which a lot of states have done. Noah, you think the prospects of of recreational marijuana would be some some point off into the future? Absolutely, and you know, I still think that the prospects of medical marijuana are unlikely this year. Senate President Ty Masterson said they won't take it up before the session ends. Um, so it gives it, you know, a strong preparation for 2022. We are in a, a two-year legislative cycle here, so things that pass one chamber this year can still go to the other chamber next year. They don't have to start the process over. Right. Okay, that'll do it. I don't think we have any more time. So I want to thank the Kansas Reflector colleagues, CJ Janovey, Noah Taborda, Sherman Smith, myself, Tim Carpenter, for sharing some of these insights in the session.